Chapter Thirteen of Three Men and a Maid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Three Men and a Maid by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter Thirteen. Remarkable as the apparition of Mr. Bennet appeared to his daughter, the explanation of his presence at that moment in the office of Marlowe, Thorpe, Prescott, Winslow, and Appleby was simple. He had woken early that morning, and, glancing at his watch on the dressing-table, he had suddenly become aware of something bright and yellow beside it, and had paused transfixed like Robinson Crusoe staring at the footprint in the sand. If he had not been in England, he would have said it was a patch of sunshine. Hardly daring to hope, he pulled up the shades and looked out on the garden. It was a superb morning. It was as if some giant hand had uncorked a great bottle full of the distilled scent of grass, trees, flowers, and hay. Mr. Bennet sniffed luxuriantly. Gone was the gloom of the past days, swept away in a great exhilaration. Breakfast had deepened his content. Henry Mortimer, softened by the same balmy influence, had been perfectly charming. All their little differences had melted away in the genial warmth. And then, suddenly, Mr. Bennet remembered that he had sent Billy up to London to enlist the aid of the law against his old friend, and remorse gripped him. Half an hour later he was in the train on his way to London to intercept her, and cancel her mission. He had arrived breathless at Sir Mallaby's office, and the first thing he had seen was his daughter in the arms of a young man who was a total stranger to him. The shock took away his breath again just as it was coming back. He advanced shakily into the room, and supported himself with one hand on the desk, while with the other he plied the handkerchief on his superheated face. Billy was the first to speak. "'Why, father,' she said, "'I didn't expect you.' As an explanation of her behaviour this might, no doubt, have been considered sufficient. But as an excuse for it Mr. Bennet thought it inadequate. He tried to convey a fatherly reproof by puffing like a seal after a long dive in search of fish. "'This is Sam,' proceeded Billy. "'Sam Marlowe.' Mr. Bennet became aware that the young man was moving towards him with an outstretched hand. It took a lot to disconcert Sam, and he was the calmest person present. He gave evidence of this in a neat speech. He did not, in so many words, congratulate Mr. Bennet on the piece of luck which had befallen him but he tried to make him understand by his manner that he was distinctly to be envied as the prospective father-in-law of such a one as himself. Mr. Bennet stared in a frozen sort of way at the hand. He had placed Sam by now. He knew that Sam Allaby had a son. This presumably was he. But the discovery did not diminish his indignation. "'I'm delighted to meet you, Mr. Bennet,' said Sam. You could not have come at a more fortunate moment. You see for yourself how things are. There is no need for a long explanation. You came to find a daughter, Mr. Bennet, and you have found a son. And he would like to see the man, thought Sam, who could have put it more cleverly and pleasantly and tactfully than that. What are you talking about? said Mr. Bennet, recovering breath. I haven't got a son. I will be a son to you. I will be the prop of your declining years. "'What the devil do you mean, my declining years?' demanded Mr. Bennet, with asperity. 
he means when they do decline father dear said billy of course of course said sam when they do decline not till then of course i wouldn't dream of it but once they do decline count on me i should like to say for my part he went on handsomely what an honour i think it to become the son-in-law of a man like mr bennett bennett of new york he added spaciously not so much because he knew what he meant for he would have been the first to admit that he did not but because it sounded well oh said mr bennett you do do you mr bennett sat down he put away his handkerchief which had certainly earned a rest then he fastened a baleful stare upon his newly discovered son it was not the sort of look a proud and happy father-in-law to be ought to have directed at a prospective relative it was not as a matter of fact the sort of look which anyone ought to have directed at anybody except possibly an exceptionally prudish judge at a criminal in the dock convicted of a more than usually atrocious murder billy not being in the actual line of fire only caught the tail end of it but it was enough to create a misgiving oh father you aren't angry angry you can't be angry why can't i be angry demanded mr bennett with a sense of injury which comes to self-willed men when their whims are thwarted why the devil shouldn't i be angry i am angry i come here to find you like like this and you seem to expect me to throw my hat in the air and give three rousing cheers of course i'm angry you're engaged to be married to an excellent young man of the highest character one of the finest young men i have ever seen oh well <laughs> said sam straightening his tie modestly oh, of course if you say so it's awfully good of you but father cried billy i never really loved bream i like him very much but i could never love him i only got engaged to him because you were anxious for it and because because i had quarrelled with the man i really loved i don't want to marry bream naturally said sam naturally quite out of the question in a few days we'll all be roaring with laughter at the very idea mr bennett scorched him with a look compared with which his earlier effort had been a loving glance wilhelmina he said go into the outer office but father you don't understand you don't realize that sam has just saved my life saved your life what do you mean there was a lunatic in here with a pistol and sam saved me it was nothing said sam modestly nothing go into the outer office thundered mr bennett quite unmoved by this story very well said billy i shall always love you sam she said pausing mutinously at the door i shall always love you said sam nobody can keep us apart oh, they're wasting their time trying said sam you're the most wonderful man in the world there never was a girl like you get out bellowed mr bennett whose equanimity this love scene which i think beautiful was jarring profoundly now sir he said to sam as the door closed yes let's talk it over calmly said sam i will not talk it over calmly oh come you can do it if you try bream mortimer is the son of henry mortimer i know said sam and while it's no doubt unfair to hold that against him it's a point you can't afford to ignore henry mortimer you and i have henry mortimer's number we know what henry mortimer is like 
a man who spends his time thinking up ways of annoying you you can't seriously want to have the Mortimer family linked to you by marriage Henry Mortimer is my oldest friend that makes it all the worse fancy a man who calls himself your friend treating you like that the misunderstanding to which you allude has been completely smoothed over my relations with mr. Mortimer are thoroughly cordial well have it your own way personally I wouldn't trust a man like that and as for letting my daughter marry his son I have decided once and for all if you'll take my advice you'll break the thing off I will not take your advice I wouldn't expect to charge you for it explained Sam reassuringly I give it to you as a friend not as a lawyer six and eightpence to others free to you will you understand that my daughter is going to marry Bream Mortimer what are you giggling about it sounds so silly the idea of anyone marrying Bream Mortimer I mean let me tell you he is a thoroughly estimable young man and there you put the whole thing in a nutshell your daughter is a girl of spirit she would hate to be tied for life to an estimable young man she will do as I tell her Sam regarded him sternly have you no regard for her happiness I am the best judge of what is best for her if you ask me said Sam candidly I think you're a rotten judge I did not come here to be insulted I like that you've been insulting me ever since you arrived what right have you to say that I'm not fit to marry your daughter I did not say that you've implied it and you've been looking at me as if I were a leper or something the pure food committee has condemned why that's what I ask you said Sam warming up this he fancied was the way Widgery would have tackled a troublesome client why answer me that I Sam rapped sharply on the desk be careful sir be careful he knew that this was what lawyers always said of course there is a difference in position between a miscreant whom you suspect of an attempt at perjury and the father of the girl you love whose consent to the match you wish to obtain but Sam was in no mood for these nice distinctions he only knew that lawyers told people to be very careful so he told mr. Bennett to be very careful what do you mean be very careful said mr. Bennett dashed if I know said Sam frankly the question struck him as a mean attack he wondered how Widgery would have met it probably by smiling quietly and polishing his spectacles Sam had no spectacles he endeavored however to smile quietly don't laugh at me roared mr. Bennett I'm not laughing at you you are I'm not well don't then said mr. Bennett he glowered at his young companion I don't know why I'm wasting my time talking to you the position is clear to the meanest intelligence you cannot have any difficulty in understanding it I have no objection to you personally come this is better said Sam I don't know you well enough to have any objection to you or any opinion of you at all this is the first time I have ever met you in my life mark you said Sam I think I'm one of those fellows who grow on people as far as I am concerned you simply do not exist you may be the noblest character in London or you may be wanted by the police I don't know and I don't care it doesn't matter to me you mean nothing in my life I don't know you you must persevere said Sam you must buckle to and get to know me don't give the thing up in this half-hearted way everything has to have a beginning stick to it in a week or two you'll find yourself knowing me quite well I don't want to know you you say that now but wait thank goodness I have not got to exploded mr. Bennett 
ceasing to be calm and reasonable, with a suddenness which affected Sam much as though half a pound of gunpowder had been touched off under his chair. For the little I've seen of you has been quite enough. Kindly understand that my daughter is engaged to be married to another man, and that I do not wish to see or hear anything of you again. I shall try to forget your very existence, and I shall try to see to it that Wilhelm Minor does the same. You're an impudent scoundrel, sir, an impudent scoundrel. I don't like you. I don't wish to see you again. If you were the last man in the world, I wouldn't allow my daughter to marry you. If that is quite clear, I will wish you good morning." Mr. Bennet thundered out of the room, and Sam, temporarily stunned by the outburst, remained where he was, gaping. A few minutes later life began to return to his palsied limbs. It occurred to him that Mr. Bennet had forgotten to kiss him good-bye, and he went into the outer office to tell him so. But the outer office was empty. Sam stood for a moment in thought, then returned to the inner office, and picking up a timetable began to look out trains to the village of Windlehurst in Hampshire, the nearest station to his Aunt Adeline's charming old-world house, Windles. End of chapter 13 Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org